When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now it's time to talk about socialism. The Gallup poll found last summer that 51% of young Americans, aged 18 to 29, say they're positive about socialism, compared to 45% who feel positive about capitalism. That's a 12-point decline in young adults' positive views of capitalism in just the past two years. And a big change since 2010, when 68% viewed it positively. But what is socialism? Paul Adler has been thinking about that. He teaches management, environmental studies, and sociology at USC. Now he has a new book out. It's called The 99% Economy, How Democratic Socialism Can Overcome the Crises of Capitalism. Paul Adler, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, John. We face now giant problems. Let's assume everybody knows the problems. Global warming, wealth inequality, economic instability, inadequate health care, poor public education, sexism and racism. And our other problem is that our politics fails to solve any of these big problems. The question is an old one. What is to be done? The answer, you argue, is socialism. And the root cause of our problems is capitalism, production for profit. Of course, that's not obvious to most people. Why blame capitalism for all these different things? Yeah, well, we suffer many different problems in society today, and they all have many different causes. Capitalism as such isn't the only cause, but I do argue that it's the root cause. And in particular, my argument is that as long as the core of the economy operates on these capitalist principles where firms compete for profit rather than cooperating to solve our problems, where employees are just employees, they're not people who share ownership and control in their enterprises. In such a society, government is really restricted in its ability to solve these big problems we face. So yeah, the root cause as I see it is capitalism and if we're going to solve these big problems, then we need to move to some very different economic system. There's all sorts of improvements we can make in our life if we implement much more modest reforms of the kind that the Democratic candidates are talking about. But if we want to overcome these big ones, I just don't see how we get there without a really fundamental change in the way our economy works. You say we need to change the way enterprises make decisions about work, about investments, about their products, quoting from your book, these decisions need to be made not by corporate leaders looking to maximize profits, but democratically. We need more democracy. We need a lot more democracy. But of course, a lot of people are skeptical about that. About 45% of the voting age population did not vote in 2016. That's something like 140 million people who could have voted but but didn't. And I'm not sure that the 63 million people who voted for Trump have good ideas about uh, global warming or sexism or racism. So I wonder if you perhaps you should reconsider your enthusiasm for democracy. 
Yeah, people have plenty good reasons to be skeptical of democracy as they see it working now. And again, there's many factors that explain that skepticism and that I think justify that skepticism in particular. It does seem to me above and beyond all the ways in which the business community subverts the popular will uh, through the various channels of corruption, corporate donations, and so forth. Above and beyond those factors, there's also just the fact that any government, no matter how well-intentioned, can't do very much to hurt the profits of the business sector without massive economic crisis ensuing. Uh, Massive unemployment would then, in turn, undermine the legitimacy of the government. So even the best-intentioned governments uh, have a difficult time acting on the popular will and dealing with big issues we face. But I think more generally, we face an interesting problem that I've, it struck me, was akin to the problem that Aristotle faced in ancient Greece. Aristotle, I'm told, was a very smart man. He gives all the appearances of considerable intelligence and insight and compassion, but nevertheless couldn't for the life of him imagine democracy leading to anything else but chaos and rule by the rabble. Extending the franchise to women, let alone to slaves, was just beyond his imagination. And, you know, a couple of thousand years later, here we are, pretty comfortable in our conviction that democracy, with all its flaws and warts, is probably the best political system. Socialism, as I understand it, is essentially the expansion of that democratic decision-making process to the economic realm. And just like Aristotle couldn't imagine political democracy working on an expansive frame, I think we suffer the same kind of problem in imagining the expansion of democratic decision-making to the economic domain. Yeah, one of the most interesting parts of your book to me was the argument that we democratic socialists can learn a lot about decision-making by understanding some of our largest corporations like Walmart and Amazon. I always thought Walmart and Amazon were the, were the enemy of the people, not something that provided a glimpse of utopia. What do you mean? Yes, I get that this part of my book may feel a bit provocative to uh, folks already sort of in the socialist camp. The way I've been thinking of it is that we need to give people some vision of what this better world would look like. It's not easy to find examples to refer to. Socialism in the 21st century has to be very different from socialism in the 20th century. The Soviet Union, China, these don't provide great models for us. They're certainly not inspiring models for lack of democracy, for one thing, but also because they were not very efficient, effective economies. They didn't provide the goods for people. They helped those very authoritarian forms of socialism, helped draw those countries out of very primitive conditions. But once they reached a level of sort of industrialization, then the next stage of economic development was beyond their reach for lack of democracy above all. So where do we go looking for examples of what it means to plan in a democratic way on a large scale, a complex economy? It struck me that many of our CEOs are closet socialists. They, they talk about the importance of competition in, their relation, in the relationship between their business and the other businesses they're competing against. But internally, most of these businesses operate like planned economies. So that idea itself is not so new that these big corporations are typically islands of planning and a sea of competition. What I did that was a bit newer was I said, I went to look at the way these corporations undertake this planning and realized that they confront the same kinds of problems in miniature that the socialist economies of the Soviet Union and China faced when they were trying to plan. They also 
encounter important challenges in assuring innovation and efficiency, worker motivation. And some of them, the ones that take what we call the high road approach to competition, try to leverage the creativity of their employees. They try to reach down into the organization to mobilize ideas from middle managers and from frontline employees too sometimes about what their strategic goals should look like and how they could implement them. So they, those organizations also experience the same challenges of democracy that we will encounter in a socialist planned economy. My idea was simply that the smarter of these corporations have, act, have confronted these challenges in a pretty interesting way. If we squint a little bit and abstract from all the terrible things that Amazon and Google and Toyota and Kaiser Permanente, all the terrible things that they do, if we squint a little bit and observe them on their better days, we, can, we actually have a working model of what planning would look like Obviously, if we wanted to make this truly socialist, the democracy element, dimension, would need to be greatly deepened and expanded. That obviously is a serious limitation, but we also get some glimpses of what that might look like. And then in terms of what these organizations do to ensure efficiency, innovation, and motivation, there we got some pretty interesting ideas that I think would be easy to imagine scaling up to ensure that the planning at a national level would, be, uh, would have all the attributes that we need. Well, another way that at least some people imagine a socialist future is Scandinavian social democracy. These, we are told, are the happiest countries in the world. They're countries where the governments leave the economy in the hands of private investors, but they rely on the governments to ease the problems that result from that. So they have extensive social welfare programs that provide good health care, excellent free education, jobs for everybody who wants one. Isn't life in Sweden a lot better for ordinary people than it is here? And is that the kind of socialism that you envision as our goal? There's no doubt that many things about life in the social democracies of Northern Europe are uh, are way better than our experience here and that we could mitigate dramatically the suffering of so many working people if we were to implement these kinds of welfare provisions, so forth. So I'm all for it. And we see similar provisions being proposed by the presidential candidates like Warren and Sanders. Uh, I'm all for it. I just don't think that they'll enable us to overcome the really big problems we face. These are not countries, these Scandinavian countries have not avoided economic crisis. It's true their worker protections meant that the impact of the crisis fell disproportionately on young people. So like in 2018, youth unemployment was nearly 9% in the US. That's pretty bad. It was 17% in Sweden and Finland. So the folks who had jobs got to keep them in a way that wasn't true in the US, but the folks who were trying to enter the labor market were screwed even more royally than here in the United States. These are countries that are caught up in the world of international finance. And as a result, there's havoc being wrought in these economies too. Consider household debt. In the US uh, last year, household debt was about 109% of household annual income. In Finland, 138%. In Sweden, 188%. In Denmark, 280%. Right. This is a financial crisis run amok. These countries have not managed to contain the financial crisis. And similar on the environmental dimension, they were very, you know, we, we're told a lot about electric cars, you know, on the streets of uh, so many of these Scandinavian countries, Norway particularly, very green. But if you count their oil and gas exports, seventh biggest emitter in the world. 
in their foreign policy. We like to see Swedish and Norwegian peacekeepers at work around the world. But Sweden uh, is one of the biggest arms exporters in the world, the third highest per capita export of arms after Israel and Russia. Uh, And similarly, in the workplace, uh, it's true that workers have a little more voice through their union and the governance of enterprises there. But at the end of the day, they suffer the same veto by investors as we suffer here in the United States. So, um, yes, I'm all for social democracy, but if you think it's going to solve the big problems we face, you've got uh, some important lessons yet to learn. Another line that your critics take up is that what we really need is a more ethical capitalism. We need corporate social responsibility, and there is a big movement afoot, at least in the op-ed pages, to encourage companies to be more like Patagonia. They support organic agriculture. They give their employees higher wages and bigger role in management decisions. Nearly 200 executives with the Business Roundtable recently committed their companies to this approach, saying that the purpose of a corporation includes, quote, a fundamental commitment to all of our stakeholders, which include not only the stockholders, but the employees, the customers, and the communities around them. Isn't this great news? Yeah, you'd certainly rather have corporations attentive to the needs of these other stakeholders than ones that were entirely oblivious. But forgive me for my skepticism. (laughs) One way to think about this is that capitalist firms have always had to worry about these other stakeholders, more or less. The capitalist firms make money by selling stuff people want to buy. They need workers whose efforts on the shop floor enable them to come up with decent products of decent quality and ship them on time. They need products that make sense to their customers. And so they've always had to worry about social needs. The problem is that those social needs compete with the needs of investors. And at the end of the day, the investors have veto power. So yes, all these other stakeholders get to sit around the table. If you're one of these uh, business roundtable companies, you've made a commitment to inviting them into the conversation, but the investors at the table have veto power. So long as that's the case, the big problems we face in society can't be overcome. You can't expect the the fossil fuel companies to put themselves out of business because they take uh, their environmental responsibilities a bit more seriously. You can't expect the big automobile companies to completely rebuild their their products and their processes in the name of environmental, the environmental stakeholders. That would bankrupt them. And so we face a really interesting problem where voluntary action by these firms can get us a little way towards some of these goals that we share, but it can't get us anywhere near where we need to be. Of course, lurking in the background of this conversation are Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. Bernie is a democratic socialist. Elizabeth Warren describes herself as a capitalist. Outline for us what you see as the differences, because a lot of people think they're pretty much the same. I think their programs are pretty much the same. Uh, Bernie's probably pulled Elizabeth Warren to the left on many of these, and more power to him for having done so. But both of them, I think, can be fairly described, their platforms, policies, can be fairly described as social democratic. So to that extent, I'm all for it, but I don't think it gets us where we need to go. Why do I think Bernie's the more important candidate? The distinction, I think, is essentially boils down to this, that Bernie Sanders understands that if we restrict ourselves to policies with which the business community can reconcile itself, then we will never get anywhere near close to even the social democratic reforms that Warren is proposing. 
the business community is going to strike back, and we've already seen evidence of that in the news in the business pages. They're mobilizing ferociously to to slap down her candidacy. Let's imagine a Warren presidency and a and, and a Democratic controlled House and Senate. As soon as she starts to implement that program, the opposition of the business community is going to be ferocious. What mass movement is going to be pushing back on that community? What has Warren done to build that mass movement? Nothing. Her campaign is an electoral campaign. Bernie at least understands that if we try to implement these kinds of policies, it's going to be a struggle and we're going to need a mass movement to push for, to put pressure on Congress in order to make this happen. And that's the big difference for me between Bernie and Sanders, not in their policy recommendations so much as the constant drumbeat in the Sanders campaign that we need to be building the kind of mass movement that enable us to resist the pushback we're certainly going to encounter from the business community. You have confidence that socialism could work and that we can get there. In your book, The 99% Economy, you say you are hopeful and optimistic. Many of us find this optimism amazing. We want to know why you are hopeful and optimistic. Let me answer that in three parts. First, I think in the longest sweep of history, there are lots of things on the so- on socialism side. As capitalism develops, we see ever more concentration, which makes it a lot easier to imagine nationalizing vast spans of industry. We can nationalize Walmart with a stroke of a pen. Nationalizing the 100,000 retail stores that Walmart has displaced over the past couple of decades would have been a gargantuan, really difficult task. Secondly, uh, capitalism in its development has developed a increasingly sophisticated working class, notwithstanding your uh, frustration with the way many working people voted in the last 2016 elections. Um, these are more educated people, people more aware of the world than was the case in the working class 50 or 100 years ago. Maybe their class instincts have been dulled, but their level of education has improved. And that, I think, is an enormous resource for a socialist movement. And then thirdly, I think the level of frustration we see today between what could be with all the technology and resources we have and what the misery of working people that working people experience today, that sharpens people's motivation for change. So in the big sweep of things, my first point would be in the big sweep of things, I think we have a reason for optimism. In the shorter term, I think we also can be optimistic for another reason, which is that there are a number of crises that loom and those crises can be crucibles for quite rapid and radical change in people's mindsets. The environmental crisis is going to envelop us very quickly and we're going to be soon confronted with very dramatic choices about not about how strong the government's intervention in the economy is going to be, but whether it's going to be democratic or totalitarian. We are going to encounter economic crises. Uh, They've been held in abeyance for a couple of years, but another 2008 is more than likely. It's very likely. And in that kind of moment, I think we can also see opportunities for radicalization, rapid radicalization. And then thirdly, if either of these more progressive candidates is elected to the White House, there'll be a political crisis. And that political crisis too can be a crucible for change. I'd make one other, the third kind of appeal I would make to optimism is, um, goes back to a poem by Bertolt Brecht um, about called the, the tailor of Ulm. He, he retrieves an old folklore, of, apparently a half-true story about a fellow back in, I think, the 17th century in Germany who decided he could fly and he made a, some wings for himself and jumped off the cathedral tower and, of course, came crashing to his death um, below. And um, 
the, in, according to Brecht's poem, uh, the priest looks out on this mess uh, and says, you see, people, man was never supposed to fly. This was Brecht's way of expressing his sense that, yeah, socialism has failed and failed over and over again. That doesn't mean that it, we can't develop a more viable model of socialism and a stronger foundation for it and learn to fly. I just flew back from the East Coast a few days ago. The plane seemed to be working pretty well, and no, I didn't have fears of crashing in the town square. Paul Adler, his new book is The 99% Economy, How Democratic Socialism Can Overcome the Crises of Capitalism. Paul, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, John. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.